It's another beautiful day in central Indiana. We're so glad that you chose to join us for worship this morning when there are so many things you could have been doing outside. I want to greet everybody who's joining us online. Thanks for being a part of our service today. Grab a Bible if you brought one and open it up to the Old Testament book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, and find chapter 12. Uh, Genesis chapter 12 is where we're going to begin. It's Mother's Day, so let's just celebrate our moms this morning. Let's take a minute and do that. Come on, y'all. Somebody's going to have to teach me how to whistle like that because I've never been able to do it, but... We are thankful for all of our mothers this morning. Can I tell you that preaching Mother's Day sermons has become more and more difficult over the years? When I first began to be a preacher, Mother's Day didn't seem very complicated. It was a time when we recognized, honored, and celebrated all the moms in the church. My first church, we used to order carnations every Mother's Day, and we would give a carnation to all the moms that were there. And then we'd have a time in the service where we'd recognize and give a gift to the youngest mom, the mom with the youngest child, the oldest mom, the mom with the most children. How many of you remember things like that? I moved to my second church in Oklahoma, and we'd do a similar thing. But when I got there, I discovered on my first Mother's Day that they had a tradition in place, had been in place for a long time, where every year, and this was just a small church, every year they would recognize someone as Mother of the Year. And uh, I mean, if you've ever been in a small church, then you'll, this will sound familiar to you, but there was a special plaque on a special wall with a special light that shone on the plaque that commemorated all the different women who had been chosen mother of the year over the years. And it was a really, really big deal to this church, but it also caused hard feelings every year. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And so, you know, for the first two or three years, that was okay, but then that church began to really grow and get a lot bigger, and we had multiple services, and so that became problematic, and a preacher came along and did away with Mother of the Year. How do you think, what do you think happened to a preacher who would do something like that? He lived to tell about it in his church in Indiana. That's what happened to him. (laughs) How many of you remember mother-daughter banquets? Those were always special. The little church I grew up in in Oklahoma, every year we'd have a mother-daughter banquet, and my grandmother, who was the church secretary, and my mother and my older sister Candy would always go to the mother-daughter banquet wearing identical dresses. That was back in the day when you'd go to the store and you'd buy a pattern. You'd pick out a pattern. How many of you remember what I'm talking about? I can still see the little packet that the pattern came in. And then you'd go over and you'd carefully select the material, the wildest, boldest material you could find, and then you would hand make identical mother and daughter banquet dresses and wear those. It was crazy. And mother-daughter banquets were held in my first church, my second church. I I can't remember a mother-daughter banquet being held since I've been the pastor here. I do know that back in 2003, there was a mother-daughter talent show uh, that um, was held, and that was kind of a fun thing. But we used to do all kinds of different things. Well, Mother's Day, like so many things in our culture, has changed today because, in part, because we've become more sensitive to the fact that what might be a time of celebration for some can also be a time of great sadness for others. And that's the reality of Mother's Day because it's a time of genuine sadness and genuine grief for a lot of women for a lot of different reasons. Uh, Maybe it's the pain of not having a mother when you were young or maybe as we saw in the video, maybe you lost your mother. Every year on Mother's Day, there are those who are facing their first Mother's Day without their mom around. 
Maybe it's the pain of having a mother who was distant and uninvolved and unloving. Maybe it's the pain of not being able to be a mother because while that's what you've always wanted to be, you're still single or because you've been dealing with issues of infertility. Maybe it's the pain of losing a child. Maybe it's the feeling of failure that you have as a mother. Maybe Mother's Day is difficult because every Mother's Day you can't help but think about a prodigal child who has wandered away and broken your heart over and over again through their disobedience. I could go on and on. The truth is there are a lot of women who just simply avoid church on Mother's Day because they can't bear to be here. Well, I want to acknowledge that this morning. I want to acknowledge that I understand that this morning, but at the same time, I also want to preach a Mother's Day message. But I think I can preach a Mother's Day message today that focuses on the kindness and the faithfulness of God, regardless of what your circumstance is. So if you've got your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 12, and if you're able this morning, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. Now, you may have noticed on the insert this morning that Genesis chapter 12 is not listed as one of our texts, and it's not. It's not one of the main texts that we'll be looking at today, but you just bear with me and it'll all make sense as we get a little bit deeper into the message. I'm going to read the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to, had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Uh, because we have the benefit of the completed Bible, we know that this was God's first step in creating the nation of Israel, and that's what's behind the first part of verse 2 where we read the words, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. But at this point in their lives, Abram and Sarai are childless, but God has a plan. Now, you fast forward just a little bit to Genesis chapter 15, and God shows up again, and he renews, he reiterates his promise to Abram. But Abram can't help himself, and he brings up the fact that even though they have obeyed God to this point, they're still childless, and God doubles down. Look at these words on the screen from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5. He, that's God, took him, that's Abram, outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. But let me ask you a question this morning. How many of you know that waiting on God is one of the most difficult things in life? Whether you're Abram in Genesis chapter 15 or you're living right now today, waiting on God is difficult. And that takes us to Genesis chapter 16. And I need you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. 
Abram and Sarai have no children still. They're only getting older. And so, and you know this story, many of you, Sarai uh, decides to take matters into her own hands. And you follow along as I read the first six verses of Genesis 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, now note this, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Verse 6, your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from him. Now, I have to use a little bit of restraint not to add a little extra commentary to this part of the story because it just doesn't seem right to me. Abram's wife tells him to sleep with her maidservant so she can build a family through her. Then when he does and the maidservant gets pregnant, bringing a lot of tension into the home, Abram's wife gets all up in his face in a back bedroom one night. You can just see this happening. and said, this is all your fault. You need to do something about it. That just doesn't seem right to me, but this is what happened. Now, let me just make a few observations before we go on. First of all, what Sarai did was not an unusual thing because in the culture they lived in, the primary purpose of marriage was to have children. And so that means that if a wife struggled with infertility, social custom demanded that she give one of her maidservants to her husband so the family name could continue. So Sarai was just doing her duty, for lack of a better word, according to the culture. But there's no way she could do this without her emotions being involved. That was obvious. The second observation is that this passage makes Hagar sound really bad. Uh, but according to Mesopotamian culture at the time, if you had more than one wife, one wife could not enslave another. And so it doesn't take a genius to figure out that this was just a bad idea from the beginning for more reasons than the fact that it displayed a lack of faith from Abram and Sarai in the promise of God. And here's what happens. Because of what Sarai does, Hagar, in the course of a day, goes from being a nobody to a somebody. Verse 4 literally said that Sarai gave Hagar to her husband to be his wife, and now she has claimed to be the mother of the heir of all of Abram's household. And so she viewed her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. And the third thing is that Abraham, Abram, rather, in, at this point, just makes a huge mistake. And his mistake, first of all, his biggest mistake was not trusting in the promise of God and not doing what Sarai suggested they do. But beyond that, his mistake was not bringing peace, not making peace, stepping in and making peace when all this tension in the household began. And so Abram, basically, when all of this tension and all of this conflict between the two women came up, he's just like, I'm out. I'm out. And again, in verse 6, he says to Sarai, do whatever, she's your maidservant, do whatever you think is best. And we saw that Sarai chose to mistreat Hagar, which caused her to run away. Is anyone surprised at any of this? This is an incredibly complicated situation with a lot of emotion involved. Well, pick up the story with me in Genesis 16 and verse 7, and let's read down through verse 16. Okay, the last time we saw... 
Hagar, she was fleeing from Sarai who had been mistreating her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. This woman who was now probably viewing herself as a single mom, expecting a child, going to be a single mom with no prospects. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And here's her response. Verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one, notice that that's a capital O, the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Rai. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave him the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So she's on the run. She has no prospects. I'm sure she was very frightened. And God shows up in this angel and says, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Do you think that was difficult advice for Hagar to hear? It absolutely was. And while that's not good advice for someone who is in a genuinely abusive relationship, it's good advice for Hagar because submission to Sarai was the only thing that could diffuse the tension and the only thing that would allow her baby to be born and cared for in the safety of a home. How many moms, how many single moms have to put up with difficult jobs sometimes and difficult circumstances just to protect and provide for their children because they understand that there's no other option? But that's not all the angel says to her. He says, you're going to have a son. He's going to be named Ishmael. Ultimately, I'm going to make you the mother of a great nation. And it's kind of a double-edged announcement because he goes on to say that, that God knows that this nation, this son and this nation are going to have problems. But in the end, Hagar is so thankful for God's intervention in her life that she says in verse 13, or that we read in verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. So this is the name she gave to God. She gave him the name El-Rai, which means the God who sees me. And so Hagar does what the angel says. She goes home. She gives birth to, a to Ishmael. And the Bible says that Abram was 86 years old when this happened. Remember, he was 75 years old when we first read about him in Genesis chapter 12, and now he's 86 years old, still waiting on that promise from God, seemingly waiting on that promise from God. Well, you fast forward, and now Abram is 99 years old. We read about this in Genesis chapter 17, and God comes and appears to him once again, and once again, God confirms the original promise to Abram, but that's not all he does. He also changes his name from Abraham, which, or from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of many. And he once again says, you're going to have an heir through your wife, Sarai, whose name he changes to Sarah. Now, 
We've got to jump ahead from there to Genesis chapter 21, and so you won't be left hanging. Let me fill in the gaps with a very theological description of what happens in the in-between. A bunch of stuff happens. <laughs> and then we turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. You can go back and read all about that stuff later in the day. And in Genesis chapter 21, and I need you to be there in your Bibles, in Genesis chapter 21, God's promise is fulfilled. Sarah has a son, and she names him Isaac, which means laughter. Listen to verses 6 and 7 of Genesis 21. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? And everybody look at me. There's obviously a lot of joy and a lot of happiness in Sarah's words, but there is now conflict and a problem in the home because now as a result of the birth of Isaac, Abraham's firstborn son Ishmael is no longer his heir and so that old family tension is renewed once again and we see that very clearly in verses 8 through 14 of Genesis 21. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so concerned, or excuse me, do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac, that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also because he is your offspring. And verse 14 says, early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered, wandered in the desert of Beersheba. Stop right there. So again, she finds herself basically as a single mom with no prospects, not knowing what the future holds on her own. Now, I don't know how old Ishmael was when all this happened. Isaac was probably somewhere around the age of two or three when he was weaned, when he was being weaned, which means that he was no longer being nursed by his mother. And as, re <coughs> excuse me, as a result of that, Abraham throws a big party. Now, that wasn't that surprising because in ancient days, being weaned as a child was a big deal because in ancient days, many children did not live long enough to even get to that point where they were weaned from their mother. And since Isaac was the son that God had promised Abraham and Sarah that they'd been waiting for for so long and they were so old when he was born, this was really a big deal. And so they throw this big party. But verse 9 says, Sarah sees that Ishmael is mocking. I don't know exactly what that means beyond that he wasn't respecting what was happening in that setting. He wasn't being respectful. And that competition between Sarah and Hagar that had been dormant for years is now in full bloom once again. And as a result, again, probably in a back bedroom, Sarah's like, ah, you've got to get rid of this woman. And after a message from God, that's what Abraham does. But it looks like, it looks like it's so unfair to Hagar. Pick it up in verse 15. In verse 15, it says, when the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby about a bow shot away for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. She, she, she sent away from her home she has just minimal provision. She's in the desert. 
She uses all the provision, and now it looks like they're both going to die of heat exhaustion, and it's a heartbreaking scene. But that's when God shows up once again. I'm going to pick it up in verse 17. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the, drink, the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Let's stop right there. You know, there are a couple things that come to my mind right away about this crazy story. This is a crazy story. And the first thing that comes to my mind is that this is a story about imperfect people. And you know what that means? That means it's a perfect story for all of us today. Because at the end of the day, that's all we are, any of us. We're just a bunch of imperfect people. Abraham was a good man, but he wasn't a perfect man. I mean, there were times in his life when he lacked the backbone that he needed. There were times when he wasn't the leader that he needed to be, and he was easily swayed. Sarah was a good woman, but she wasn't perfect. She wears her emotion on her sleeves, and as a result, there's times when she's controlled by her emotions, emotions and so she's competitive, and she's petty, and she's insensitive, and she's, she lacks compassion. Hagar seems like she's a for the most part of good woman, a good woman, but she's not perfect. She lacks perspective. When she goes from being a nobody to somebody in the household of Abraham, she gets so caught up in the transformation that she loses all humility. It's, an, it's a story about imperfect people, again, which means it's a story for all of us. I, I'm also struck by the fact that it's hard to be a mother. This is, after all, a Mother's Day message. Mothers only want the best for their children, and oftentimes they'll go through great lengths, great difficulty, and great stress to see that happen. I read this week that today 40% of women who have children under the age of 18 are the primary breadwinner in the family. In 1960, that percentage was only 11%, but today it's 40%. And that means that women, many women, are working harder outside the home than they ever have before while inside the home, they still have all the same responsibilities. In 1960, 92% of all mothers were married. In today's date, at today's date, only 69% of married are married. And, and I read this this week, and I don't know if this is true, and I don't know how you could even come up with this number, but I read that the average mother will have changed approximately 7,300 diapers by the time her baby turns the age of two. Anybody want to weigh in on the truthfulness of that this morning? But it's not just mothers who are stressed. Parents are just stressed. And why wouldn't they be? Parents worry about money. They worry about work. They worry about whether or not their kids are playing with the right kids, whether or not their kids are doing good in school, whether they're giving them enough help in school, how they're going to help their kids balance their school and their extracurricular activities and still have a vital, growing spiritual life, which is a big deal in the busy culture that we live in today. They worry about whether they're giving their children enough time, whether they're modeling a stable marriage for their children today, and you can go on and on and on. And I've been a pastor for a long time, and I've never met a single mom. I have never met a single mom who didn't subject herself to grueling and unfair expectations every day as she tries to be superwoman and always feels like she comes up short when it's all said and done. 
which is so unfair. And the stress doesn't end just because your children grow up. I can tell you that from experience. The only thing that changes is what you worry about. But this unusual Mother's Day story of Hagar gives us a couple of promises that we need to hang on to as we begin to bring it to a close. And the first one is this. What Hagar learned about God in Genesis chapter 16 has not changed today. He is still the God who sees, which means he is the God who sees me, which means he is the God who sees you. No matter who you are, no matter what circumstance you're dealing with on this Mother's Day, no matter what emotion or what pain or what longing or what questions or what doubt you've got going on in your life, he sees you. He knows the struggle. He knows the sacrifice. Because he loves you with an everlasting love, you can know for sure that God sees you. That's something Hagar discovered when she received that cruel treatment from Sarai, and as a result, she left her home. But it's not just something that we learn in this one incident. The Bible reiterates this truth that God always sees you over and over again. In fact, I'm going to put some verses up on the screen, and I'm going to ask you to read them with me. I want to hear your voices. The first one is 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. Let me hear your voices. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God is always watching. And then this from Psalm 121, first verse 3 and then verses 5 through 8. It'll come up on multiple slides, and so we might have to pause in between, but read these words with me. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon at night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore, both now and forevermore. And how about Proverbs 15 and verse 3? The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. God sees you. El Ra'i, the God who sees, sees you. Hagar said, I have seen the one who sees me. That's the God you need to connect with today. And let me take just a moment to speak directly to the mothers who are here this morning, in particular, those of you mothers, those of you women who are struggling on this Mother's Day. I want you to listen to me just as if it were just you and me in a room sitting across from each other. God sees you. He sees you today. He sees the pain, he sees the longing, he sees the emptiness you might be feeling on this Mother's Day. He sees and he understands your questions and he sees and he feels your grief. Mother's Day may be a day when you just wanna be all alone but you're never alone because your God, El Ra'i, he sees you. He is the one who sees you every moment of every day. The second truth that we have from the story here that we need to hang on to is that God keeps his promises. 
That means God always comes through in the end. God always comes through in the end. What happens in our story? In chapter 21 of Genesis, Hagar is forced to leave her home, her security, her status, all for the safety of her son. And then when they're both near death and the situation seems so hopeless that she lays him down in a shaded area and she goes away some distance because she cannot bear to watch him die, what happens? God shows up. And God shows up and reveals a well for them so they can get water and live because God keeps his promises. Back in Genesis chapter 16, through an angel, God had told Hagar that she would have descendants, descendants too numerous to count, and God keeps his promises. I mean, the Bible says in the New Testament that it's impossible for God to lie. God keeps his promises. He shows up. I said earlier that sometimes one of the most difficult things in life to do is to wait on God, but that's exactly what many times we need to do. We find ourselves needing to do. We have to wait on God because God keeps his promises and God shows up. Even when we're weary and we're tired and we feel like giving up and we walk a distance away because we can't bear the situation any longer, God keeps his promises and God shows up. And that's what we have to hang on to. What God did for Hagar, he'll do for you wherever you are in your life. It's interesting uh, that we read at the end of chapter 21 that when Ishmael grew up, he became an archer. And I'd read that before and I never paid any attention to it. I thought, well, probably that was a common profession in those days. But I read something this week that said becoming an archer in that day and age was equivalent to growing up to be a doctor today. I don't know what that means, but it sounds good to me. Hagar was not Abraham's first and chosen wife. You know what that means? She wasn't a part of God's original promise that happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Ishmael was not the son of Abraham and Sarah. That means he was not a part of God's original promise. But you know what? God still showed up. God still came through. God still kept his promises by his incredible generous grace. God blessed Hagar and Ishmael. God keeps his promises. And whatever's happening in your life today, you need to remember that. He sees you. He keeps his promises. You can count on him to show up. Some of you, I can see from the platform, some of you, I know your story, and I know you have been through some difficult times, and you know firsthand that God keeps his promises. There's never a moment when he doesn't.